Stay hungry, stay foolish. Show we welcome Alan McNabb, MD for EMEA for Velocity, and CEO and founder of Velocity, David Dunn. Welcome to the show, guys. Thanks so much. Great, great to, great to have you. So, you have an awesome product. It's about to evolve into a very, very interesting product, adding artificial intelligence. But before we even go to talking about the product, it'd be great to hear the story of Velocity. Maybe we start with you, David. Sure. Um, well, thanks again. Um, Velocity is a made-up name. It's a really a combination of two words, velocity and digital. And the idea is that uh, the world's increasingly moving at high velocity in, because of digital. And we want to bring those two things together and, and essentially be the shepherd for companies as they kind of move through this new environment and, and embrace it and, and take advantage of it for their business. Yeah. Tell us, though, the story of how you got to this, because you have a really interesting past Irishman, yeah. but living in the States for a very long time now. Yeah, about 25 years uh, in New York now, and um, done a lot of different things. Started off in the retail trade back here in Ireland. My, my glory days, I suppose. <laughs> right out of school, and um, and then went to the States and, and got into the restaurant business. Um, that for a few years there, went to, to the UK, uh, ended up opening about 27 restaurants in the UK and the States. Grand Met and subsequently Plan Hollywood, and but but from a young age I was always really interested in computers and and, um, and and fascinated by what we could do or maybe what we couldn't do. Um, but along the way, when you when you're in the retail business or you're in the restaurant business, one of the things you get really good at is either filling stores or putting bums and seats at restaurants. And so um, I, I learned how to market businesses in a very tactical way. Um, strategically, but tactically, you know, so you go to a new location, you open a restaurant in Cardiff or wherever it might be. And um, the hardest thing you can possibly do is fill it, you fill it every day. Right. So, so you try to get people excited about that. And, um, at the end of the day, it's customer engagement. You know, it's, it's at the cold face of customer service. And I learned so much there about what it is to actually market a business that, Later on, I had the opportunity to invest in an internet startup, and it was just a sort of a fluke thing. A couple of friends of mine, a computer science guy and a marketing guy, wanted to do an internet startup in 1994. And, and I was still in the restaurant business, and um, I kept hearing this. Every time we'd go out for drinks or whatever, they'd be talking about this internet startup. And I'm like, well, that's what's stopping you? And they'd say, like, oh, we can't afford it. You can't afford it. What's stopping you? Really, seriously. So one guy says, well, it might monthly cost her like two and a half grand a month. I can't pay that and do the start. The other guy said, I said to the other guys, well, what are yours? He said, like, 3,000 a month. I said, okay, I'll cover you for six months. Let's go. Um, so that was the business plan. Wow. Actually, let's go. Um, and and uh, we, we launched a business called uh, Internet Development Corporation. We called it IDC. <laughs> the research guys at IDC caught on to this very, very quickly and said, you can't use that name. <laughs> so out of that was born .com Interactive. And dot uh, com. That's a better name, isn't it? Yeah, but really yeah. a better name. Uh, <laughs> and but of course, we couldn't get that domain, so we registered dot company dot com, and that was our uh, that was our launch name. And 
we, we built a really nice little digital business working with agencies. And what we learned very quickly was that ad agencies had no idea what to do with this internet thing. Um, and <coughs> Some still don't. <laughs> Who said that? Who, hey, get out of this room, you. <laughs> <laughs> truth, truth. Uh, but long story short, uh, we, we kind of just wedged into some bigger ad agencies and they're like, you know, we can be your tech arm. You do creativity, you've got the clients, you know, do what you do well and we'll build it for you. And um, I suppose like anything else, when, you, when you're starting a business, we were all starting, right? So the whole internet world was a startup at the time. So we really didn't know a whole lot more than anyone else. There was no experts, let's put it that way. Uh, we were called an expert and we were many times. Uh, really, we just knew about two more things than, than the next guy. Um, we, we just read a lot. Yeah. And um, long story short, I, I was working six days a week in the restaurant business, but I really was super interested in this new world. I just saw it as an opportunity to engage customers in a new way. And uh, so on my one day off, I got pitch business, and apparently I was pretty good at that. And so probably within six months, we were doing more business there in the, in the little startup then or let's put it this way I could generate more income for myself in the startup than I could in a day in six days at the restaurant wow. so I quit the restaurant business and, and I've been at this since ever since so so what year was that well I, I quit the restaurant business at the beginning of 1995 wow so, and um, so that that kind of was a very uh, entrepreneurial time for yeah. me and, and uh, so Blackham Interactive kind of grew and I eventually sold my stake to my partners in launched another business called Link Builders, which was a search engine marketing wow. business. Wow. 1996. Early days to be in that, isn't it? Like, it was early yeah. days, yeah. And, and I set up a call center dialing webmasters. You know, so some of the sort of things you do that you look back and say, how did I manage to do that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but at the time, I managed to download the entire internet database. Uh, they, they would allow you to do searches. So you could pull down you know, 5,000 names at a time. So I hired a bunch of college students and we downloaded the whole internet database for 15 million <laughs> names at the time. <laughs> hey, listen, they made it available. Yeah, yeah. So uh, publicly available information. We just, yeah. we just did the hard work of yeah, the yeah, database. Yeah. And, uh, you know, in a funny little runabout, uh, I had all this data and I had about 10 database guys tried to put it into an AS400 database that you could use at a call center. And I couldn't get anyone to do it. I found this kid in Chicago, you know, again, so entrepreneurial at that time. Um, I went out on, on message boards and sort of asked around who'd be really good at parsing all this, you know, unstructured data, semi-structured data. And, um, and I kept getting this name, Max Levchuk. I just supposed to be able to reach out to him. So I found him anyway. He went on to find PayPal. Let's just say he did a lot better than me. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, he is actually the engineering brain behind wow. that and many other things. But, but yeah, I sent him the – so I, I'd been through 10 engineers at this point. Nobody could figure out how to do this thing. I said, Max, this is a really interesting problem. He said, send me a sample of data. So I sent him a sample of data. 20 minutes later, he says, yeah, sorted that out now. Can you send me a bigger sample? About an hour later, he says, Oh, yeah, this is a really interesting man. Yeah, I figured it out. Yeah, I have a few more scripts to write, but no, no problem. Send me the whole lot. So literally about 24 hours later, maybe 36 hours later, he was finished doing the whole thing. Loaded up, packaged, ready to go. Zipped yeah. up and executed yeah. it back to me. And I was just like, this guy's amazing. Yeah, yeah. And my biggest mistake in my career is not actually going into business with him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, so that was kind of the beginning of, of, uh, 
of a, and another company. So, so I built up the link builder business um, and I had a partnership with a call center company that was actually selling, um, it's really a very different business. I was helping them grow their digital business, but they were selling car warranties. So he helped me launch the search business by calling webmasters to sell them search services. So it was the first kind of time that I dabbled in selling services in a productized way. And, and I think it was probably one of the first times that people did that really. Yeah, yeah it was. So that was 96, 97. Then I launched a third business called F8 Media. And that was a play on the keyboard. You know, yeah, yeah. And uh, the idea of fate. Yeah, very good. Um, so it was a digital marketing business really at the core. But what we were trying to do is integrated marketing. Nobody nobody's doing it then no. yeah for well, sure still, now. even now yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah it's stitching stuff together so bits we're, and pieces we're that yeah 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 it can be a curse being yeah. too far ahead isn't it oh yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. taught me a lot about yeah, yeah. this market timing matters yeah. because in your own mind you're kind of going yeah this is of its time and then the world isn't there yet sure. and sure. the world kind of usually waits till it's too late yeah yeah, yeah. yeah I mean the, the reality um, that I learned at that time was that people don't take risks mm. Really. Well, they, they don't view it as a company risk, they view it as a career risk. Yeah, so, it's yeah. amazing, isn't it? Even in this world where employers are craving those risk takers, those mavericks, those different thinkers, still people won't take the risks. No, you don't get fired for hiring. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that, and that's, that's the, really our challenge of Velocity is qualifying opportunities with risk takers, people who are prepared to put yeah. their career on the line. Uh, but it's always for the sake of a competitive advantage and getting ahead of yeah. the competition. Uh, so if you can really find that right yeah. uh, company and, and risk taker, yeah. you can be off. Yeah. You know, because they are often the leaders within their industry that can knock down the rest of the bowling pins yeah. know, in a particular category. Yeah, yeah. and it's, it's one of the, the struggles is actually, as you said, qualifying that because you can have a lot of great meetings. They kind of come away, that was a great meeting, and then nothing happens, or yeah. you weren't talking to the right person. You might be talking to a nice person who gets yeah. what you're doing, but they yeah. might be the right person. Right. It happens quite a lot. I'm sure a lot of people nodding listening to the show. Um, we might we might just jump to Alan now for a second, because that's, that's, I'm, I'm thinking of two plates spinning on sticks here, and uh, we've got you up to 95, now, or 90, 96? <laughs> I think we're in 96. 96. What about Alan? Because you've you've a really interesting background as well, and and these these two these two plates will collide at one stage. But yeah, you, so you kind of had a different journey in that you were you were in Ireland, went over, worked for a lot of Cisco's and these kind of companies, a lot of tech companies in the early days. While David was very much entrepreneurial, and your 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 paths eventually crossed. Yes, but yeah. let's hear a bit about your background. Then. Well, I, my dad was uh, the entrepreneur. He decided that he wanted to get to Silicon Valley from Dublin. Uh, the last thing he did, so we moved in the early 1980s. And so I went to high school and college in the U.S. And uh, I got really lucky. Uh, I basically got a job with HP in 1990, and they made a decision to go with Cisco Systems. So Cisco is a tiny company that just gone public. I think they had maybe $100 million in revenue. There's about 250 people. Uh, at the company, and that's really where I kind of was working, basically helping Cisco implement their technology for HP, which would have been one of Cisco's early and biggest customers. So, uh, so I learned an awful lot about internet infrastructure, and spent six years doing that. And eventually, uh, I went to the join the Borg, as it was known at the time, because <laughs> we were acquiring like crazy. So I spent six years at Cisco, and I have the pleasure of 
basically timing every major meltdown, I think, on the planet. I was in Silicon Valley for the, the dot-com uh, implosion, and uh, I was in Wall Street, working on Wall Street during the financial implosion, and then I, I landed here in, uh, back in Ireland in 2009, 2010, <laughs> during our, <laughs> our downturn. Uh, so uh, next time you're going to move, just give me, give me a heads up, man. <laughs> I, but I, you know, these things bounce back, you know, and I think that's that's what you do learn. But uh, I think it's extraordinary the way yeah. Ireland has you know returned, and uh, we're attracting you know companies like Velocity to invest here and build teams here. I was with Arista, uh, you know, the company had just hired 60, 70 people here, and, and really doing very, very well. So I think that that's that's really what's extraordinary about the internet is how it's it accelerated disruption and created new industries. And that's really what Silicon Valley is about. You know, as you drive up and down 101 in the Valley, you, you can see literally companies disappearing, you know, as they folded and they've been superseded by next generation technology and other ones pop up. You know, Google offices replace Silicon Graphics offices at homes and replaced by, you know, at, at being work at Workday and, and companies yeah. like that. So, you know, that's kind of a norm in our industry. You've got to kind of keep an eye uh, on what's coming down the pipe, as well as keeping your foot on the accelerator, uh, because it's uh, you know it can be very very uh, threatening. You know, if you're not on top of the technology, that that mindset you guys had firsthand, you experienced that firsthand. But in Europe and you know, particularly Ireland, you see. The f- it's not so much you're celebrating failure, but in, com- in bigger companies, say, people, that mindset of, yeah, we need to try and not everything's going to work still isn't there. And, and it's a very, it, t- it takes a long time for it to come over from the States or because it's a, it's a real entrepreneurial American vibe to it, but it's taken such a long time to trickle through to Ireland, despite the big Irish American companies being here. Yeah. You know, I think that that is speeding up actually. See that playing itself out here in Dublin. Heather, so every major Silicon Valley player is here in Dublin. And they're using it as their European HQ, and it's not just because they like Dublin or Ireland. It's because they, they get something here, which is an adaptable population. It's just a very different mindset here. And you know, I've had the good fortune to work in a bunch of places. And for example, in the UK, in London. Famous for its you know, being on the leading edge of, of a lot of trends, certainly creativity, technology, banking, other areas. But um, but that's just because of the size of the population. But here we haven't had that advantage yet. We have the adaptability factor, um, and I think the adaptability comes from just really the Irish people are very open, really, you know, to new ideas. And that hasn't maybe always been the way, but but if you see sort of the changes that have happened here in this country, even since I left the United States, um, we've been through sort of a couple of different types of economy in this country, right? So we went from a very kind of farming, food, civil service-oriented economy in the 80s to, to the kind of boom and bust of the sort of construction economy to the digital economy that we're in. This country has reinvented itself. So I find that really interesting, and I think that what, what Ireland has created is, is a highly educated population that can lean forward and, and adapt very quickly and change when it needed to, sort of chameleon-like in a way. Um, but, you know, I launched, uh, you know, 
after I my entrepreneurial stint in the States, I, I built a business for Edelman, which is a global PR business. Built a global digital business there over a period of eleven years. And one of the first places that I expanded the business was into the UK and Ireland. And I remember hiring a team here early 2000s, and um, team here was, was so capable compared to some folks that I hired elsewhere in Europe. Um, we didn't have a business here, but team was great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, and I remember, you know, at that time, you know, Ireland was going through a, a tough patch, and, and that's all Europe was after the dot-com implosion. Uh, and we ultimately, in that business, cut back on what we were doing here in Ireland, which was a real painful moment in any business, but uh, but particularly then because I could see the talent, and that was you know, 15, 16 years ago. And at the time, I remember thinking to myself, if I ever have the chance again to do something, Ireland would be a phenomenal place to do it, to grow an international business out of Ireland using a sort of European HQ. So when I had the chance in, in, in San Francisco, serendipitously, uh, you know, last year, Cross, as you said earlier, just put our heads together and said, uh, "Let's do this." Yeah, so, so let's let's bring ourselves up to up to the present moment. Then, so where we kind of finished with you, that was like '98, the sort of link builder company. Then Edelman after that. Yeah, so so uh, exactly. So, so I landed at Edelman in 1998, and it was a, sort of a, a funny conversation. I, I met uh, some people. I was, I was actually looking to figure out how I would grow this next business that I'd started uh, called F8 Media. And, and I'd been quite lucky in, in establishing relations with ad agencies previously. And by then they'd kind of moved on and gotten a lot smarter. Um, to your point, they still had a lot to learn, but they'd gotten smarter. But I looked around and said, well, you know, who's the next generation of agency who needs help? And it was the PR guys. So they were building poster boards, literally, you know, putting up graphic images of campaigns. And, and I'd been building interactive games, like launched the first online game actually for Trivial Pursuit, which you could actually play in 1995-1996. And so I met Richard Edelman, and we're about 15 minutes in the conversation. He just looks at me and says, let's get married. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, uh, oh, okay. <laughs> and, and so um, I thought that was just brilliant. Yeah. Who, who the hell offers a you know, job proposal like that? Brilliant. It was yeah. fantastic. So, so, so um, against all my instincts I, I went and took a job uh, and, and, um, and I loved it it was fantastic and it was probably of all the things I've done probably among the most entrepreneurial well wow. ironically instead of a big but then not a big global company it was pretty well established maybe it was a 150 million dollar business then and I left a 700 million dollar business and the digital business at that point was had gone from being nothing to being the fastest growing you know structural business they um, but but that journey was phenomenal, and, and really I met, reinvented myself like probably every fifteen to twenty minutes. There yeah. it was just a constant yeah. chase. And, but one of the most exciting things that I managed to do there was to actually launch the European business. And that was when I got my first taste of actually going back to Ireland and hiring people here, and, and uh, being so impressed with the quality of the people that were in the marketplace here. And, and uh, like I said earlier, that at that point the seed was planted that. If I ever get the chance again, it would be so great to do something there. But when Alan and I uh, crossed paths, you know, flash forward, we started uh, you know, Velocity Business about six years ago. And, and I should say, 
for some context, uh, you know, velocity, as I mentioned earlier, was, was really born of the idea of we're moving very quickly in this digital world. Um, but I was convinced that data would actually be increasingly important to how we make all kinds of decisions, whether it's creative things we do or whether it's you know, just even strategic choices or, 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 or how companies would actually operate fundamentally. Um, I didn't have the whole roadmap, but I kind yeah. of just intuitively knew that. And so, well, at Edelman, what I'd done was worked with a lot of startups to use their technology to differentiate our services and help them grow their business at the same time. So we were first customer for, and first we brought the first clients to businesses like Buddy Media, Radiant Six, Sysmos, mm-hmm. a whole bunch of others, Metrics. Um, all those startups. I mean, literally, I was helping them to write their their. Pitch, yeah, yeah. and helping them to they would come into me with the, what was supposed to be client ready materials and I would look and say okay let, let's work on this together and we'll, mm. we'll, we'll get ready for the client but mm. the ideas were brilliant right but the ideas were all coming from technology and I was like, this is so interesting how can we use technology to enhance what what services can do for a client and so that was a very very successful model for us at Edelman and you know, literally put us years ahead of the competition um, but along the way, I, I kept thinking to myself, I'd really like to do that for myself. love the challenge right. of the technology business and getting it right. And, and I was absolutely obsessed with this idea of data. And so bringing all these things together, Velocity allowed me platform to do that. So we launched it and started really, really sort of went wide and said, okay, let's, let's launch a services business. I have all these clients that I've known for a long time. Let's do some work with them. That'll provide me the capital I need to then invest in technology and, and grow out the, yeah. the, the digital data business that ultimately is in the back of my head somewhere. Okay. And uh, so that's how it all came about. And, and um, we've been very fortunate along the way to to hire great people and and then managed to buy a terrific company a couple of years ago to really accelerate the idea and you know we came to market with our product you know, a couple of years ago, uh, we've been doing a lot of different things along the way. I think the product we have today is really fundamentally had its birth five or six years ago, but 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 really, um, it's a ground up thing that we started building about eighteen months ago. So we've replaced entirely the things we started doing, and, and uh, marketing intelligence platform we have today is is uh, I think quite a forward leaning modern idea. And, and Alan and I bumped into each other at, at our investor meeting in San Francisco, so it's stopping right Yeah, yeah. I think what's so exciting about Velocity for me, and, and really I think why David and myself came together, is that it, Velocity is really at the, at the intersection of very, very interesting trends. So one is, is that the cost of infrastructure and cloud and, and the cost of storage is just massively declining, which makes the economics of data, big data, uh, very, very accessible. I think what's also interesting is is that uh, retail is going through just you know traumatic change, and the ability now for retailers to be able to accelerate time to revenue is enormous. Right? Companies previously would take five, ten years to get to a hundred million. That's happening now within twelve months, uh, and so the data right to help them understand what is going on, right, and the ability to be able to provide a great customer experience is all driven by the data and the trends. And so old rules of business school in terms of high volume, low value, you know, low volume, high value, are, have been broken, right? This notion of 
microservices, microsegmentation, and being able to get ultra-targeted with a particular value proposition, given what you can learn now about individual consumers and the ability to be able to target that you know, has never, ever been so available. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what's really interesting about Velocity is what we're providing this context for um, marketeers to be able to do precision marketing and sales uh, and accelerate right, the business. And so marketing really is changing. If you look at sort of where IT budgets are beginning to move and drift away from, it's now basically moving into the domain of sales and marketing. So IT is just becoming integral to the whole go-to-market exercise. And that's really what we're about, is providing the type of visibility uh, and helping inform the business around you know, what's happening from a customer perspective, from a market perspective. Yeah, and David, you, you, talk, you mentioned about how Ireland is so adaptable, but the marketer has to be so adaptable now if they're going to survive. And a lot of marketers kind of go, oh, the robots are coming to take my job. But the first step is actually to embrace the robots and embrace AI and actually embrace platforms like Velocity to make their job more important because it's going to be the person who asks the questions of the of the automation is yes. going to be the really important person. That's the next step. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think it's 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 really about automation, right? Is how can because the data is coming so fast, right? The human eye's ability to be able to assess you know, what's happening is seriously challenged, right? And so it's the velocity, right, of this data and the ability to be able to you know look at it. From a historical perspective, and figure out okay, where is the hockey puck going, and what do I need to do to get ahead of that trend? That's where I think you know the intelligent marketeer is going to make a big difference to the business. Well, just listening to the depth of knowledge and experience you guys have, because your mix of skills, and you mentioned you know your team is, is an awesome team, but the diverse skills of that team is, is a really important piece that a lot of companies miss as well. That you need different thinkers so you have all your entrepreneurial skills but also the pure aspect of the edelman work that you did knowing what clients need knowing how to pitch that for clients from the coal face is really important and then your background as well alan about working for the cisco's working for these kind of the aristas and knowing the ins and outs of 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 uh, products that makes for a really interesting mix because you're actually building a product that's needed not a nice to have product but actually absolutely needed let, let's move a bit towards now how how somebody would use the product. So I'm a marketer. I'm getting my head around marketing automation. What's my first steps? Yeah, and you know it's interesting just picking up on what you said a moment ago. Um, you know, we're we already view ourselves as marketers and product people creating product for marketers. Mm-hmm. We often use the same marketers because um, the I suppose if you anything. Marketers tend to lag technology, um, so, so, so being the shepherd for them the process is very important. But so, so if you're a marketer and you're 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 leaning into this, um, the reality is that a decade ago you were looking at your web trends report. That was it. Mm. You, you were looking at site traffic, right. and and now what's happening is you have a thousand of those. Yeah. And we often talk about it as a small data problem. And people are obsessed with big data, yeah, big data, yeah. big data. But Really, marketing is a small data problem. There's so many parts, small data. There's just thousands of them. So, mm-hmm. how on earth are you going to, to Alan's point, how can you possibly consume all that information? It is actually not mm-hmm. possible. By the way, that's just looking at a report. Imagine if you're looking at the log level data. I mean, forget about mm-hmm. it. I mean, there, there's billions of lines of that. So, you know, we're, we're, we're looking at, at 
uh, data that's accumulating by the terabyte, no human can, can absorb that information and, and derive any sense of it. Mm. Point. So, so as, as, as we're looking and leaning into this, we recognize that, that, that you know, where a marketer might begin is not where they're going to end up. And so we, we need to, as a shepherd, we really need to get ahead of this thing for them. That's where our whole sort of artificial intelligence direction is taking us and our clients. Um, because, you know, frankly, we, we need to help them leapfrog this data challenge. Right? Mm. But, but where, they're, where they are today, in many cases, is, is buried in Excel, PowerPoint, literally pulling data together. Uh, imagine the world of a, of a marketing leader. In a, in a, let's, it's sometimes easier to look at a big data or, or a big um, client, but promise, just as acute, actually maybe more acute if you're a small client. But let's take it through the lens of a big brand. So you're a global brand. You're operating in, say, 100 countries, and every month in each country, somebody in, in that region or that geography is responsible for bringing together the reports from maybe six or eight different agencies. So just let's say mm-hmm. in France, you got a search, social, you know, digital agency, you've got your ad agency, you've got your branding firm, you've got street marketers, shopping marketers. All those agencies are creating reports, right? They start at the beginning of the month, and in the middle of the month, they send a report into HQ. Some poor sucker in HQ that spends two weeks trying to make sense of that, bring it into single view goes up to European HQ where the same thing happens again, goes global, same thing happens again. Two months later, CMO gets first blush at what actually happened, mm. right? But it's a rear view mirror exercise, mm. absolutely useless. And, and by the way, imagine how divorced that world is from the world of predictive analytics. <laughs> these yeah. two things don't talk to each other, right? So, so you got all these different silos of, of skill sets in an organization. So if you're the marketer and, and you're at the helm of this thing, You've got a rear view mirror going on one direction. You've got predictive stuff trying to tell you where to go next, but they don't talk to each other. We're going to bridge that gap because for the marketer, um, you, you need real-time intelligence about what just happened so you can inform what to do next, mm. <laughs> not the other way around. Mm. Um, and so, so that's, you know, I think for the marketer, the challenge is going to be um, embracing data, number one, and number two, um, really being able to utilize it in a way that, shapes and changes their business ultimately helps their customers and if we're not helping our customers to sell more products to their customers or to provide better services to their customers then they won't use us right so so that's why we look at this and ai itself is a you know 50 year old concept right Mm -hmm. so it's not a new idea in fact you go to talk to any mathematician who's been at this for a long time and they'll tell you what we've been using ai techniques for 30 years right Mm -hmm. So, so what are we doing differently today? Well, we're just applying it in a new way. And we have the luxury of, as Alan was saying, computing and storage have, have ballooned. And so our ability to actually utilize AI in real time to, to solve really complex or, or to work on really large data sets and provide insights out of those data sets is, is, a, new, is a new capability, right? So, so for us, that's really, for the marketer, we see the challenge as being being able to pull nuggets of insight out of all these large and small data sets and, and do that in real time. That's what we're intent on delivering to. And uh, like one of the things I see is a lot of marketers will be kind of going, oh, well, that's what we need to hire a chief data officer. And you're kind of going, well, the first step again is not to go there. Why don't you learn a little bit more? And this is a perfect way to do it. Because we were chatting before, Alan, that a, a big kind of objection 
that you come across a lot is, oh, yeah, but this is great for the big SME, big companies like you mentioned, Dave, but it can start with the SME, and you actually cater for the SME as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a big part of what we've been able to do. We started working with some of the big brands and big agencies, and now with uh, self-service tools, you know, we can we can really go down market at a very cost-effective way. Um, and so with that, they can start to pull in e-commerce data, they can pull in their Google Analytics, some of their own sort of data around customer uh, research or customer experience, and sort of start to play with that and see what it means. I think, you know, that that's the kind of power of the internet is that brands that come from nowhere, right, can really move on a new market segment and dollars get, get moved from one wallet to another wallet. So, you know, a lot of these, you know, um, new players, you know, are, are bringing you know, proper intelligence uh, and better understanding than some of these old brands who really aren't paying attention and can move market share very, very quickly. As I mentioned, you know, we've got you know, companies popping up getting to 100 million in revenue with 12 months. Mm-hmm. It's extraordinary. And because they're looking at the world, you know, as a single opportunity rather than just simply, you know, within their own backyard and their own geography. Yeah. So that's, that's how brands really can touch, you know, 3.6 billion people connected to the internet today. Yeah. And you know, you, like one thing, just listening to two of you and having a chat beforehand is you mentioned David, I we read more than everybody else. Like, cause this is one thing you often come across in companies that they, people, within the company stop learning. So we had a show, a special last week on growth mindset and grit, these kind of mm-hmm. skills that you pick up usually through some type of adversity, but also this drive to just constantly learn. And you mentioned David, just changing career and these 18 month cycles within Edelman. It was great lessons because you just kept picking up all these new skills. Alan, you're the same. You're, you probably moved career because you're kind of like, okay, I've got to the peak of that. I need to go and do this again. I need to go again. And, it's the same for the marketer. I, I find sometimes marketers kind of go, but my job is to pull the strings and be the puppet master here. But you're kind of going, well, those days are over. And tools like Velocity are brilliant to bring people with them. And you yeah. mentioned the shepherd, David, that this can shepherd you, but also change your career for the better. Absolutely. You know, I think there's, there's a couple of things that, that really for us are crucial to company. One is be insatiably curious, right? So if you're not just interested in what's happening and what's coming, how can you possibly get your head around it and, and create a strategy and a plan and a business <laughs> that responds to that? So so curiosity is vital. And we, we kind of think about ourselves as leaning really hard into that on behalf of our clients who maybe don't have time um, or, or, you know, they're so buried in process and, and big company operations or even small company operations. In fact, some of the busiest people I know are people who are working in small companies, right? Some of our neighbors here in Dublin um, are small companies who are working incredibly hard and people doing three roles, not one role, right? So, so, so in reality, um, you know, the people that work in our company are all like that. They're, they share two, two traits really, right? So they're incredibly curious, but they're also really genuine. They're, they're genuine about who they are, but they're also genuine about their passion for, for this for this sector. And that's what allows us to create great products that customers love. And more importantly, that's what makes sure that our products are actually really useful uh, when we when we do go and bring it to customers. And so, uh, I, I think I think that the challenge that marketers face today is, is in in the the wall of data. It's like a bit like a you know tsunami right mm-hmm. so you get this wave of 
gigantic amount of data. What are you going to do with it? You know, where are you going to hop on? And so, so I think that notion of the shepherd is really vital. Um, and so, so you know, I always get a little bit worried when people talk about experts, right? So, so are we really experts? I, I've always sort of, I've been introduced as an expert many, many times, and I always say I'm not an expert. Really, there, there's no experts mm-hmm. in, in the digital world because it's just too vast. Yeah. I mean, how could you possibly? I, I might be good at one thing in that world, mm-hmm. but there's so many things mm-hmm. we could be focused on. But we do seek to be experts in this sector that we're focused on, which is you know resolving and helping marketers take advantage of data for, to advance their businesses. Yeah. So, and you've you've a nice little update coming into the product with the AI layer. That's uh, imminent. Yeah. Um, well, this is a really good example of of innovation in our own company. Um, you know, we, we've been looking at AI for a while now, and um, we, we, like everybody else, saying, "What might we do with that?" And then, um, from the time that we really got committed to saying, "Okay, enough looking." we need to do something very serious with this and here's the direction. And then we were fortunate enough to have a couple of really talented people on the team. One was a mathematician. And uh, so we just said, okay, we don't want you to do anything else. We just want you to go away and look at this deeply for the next 30 days and back with a plan. Literally we're taking everything else off your plate. And, and by the way, that's very hard to do, right? Mm. Small, relatively small business to peel away a couple of your best people and say, we don't mm. want to talk to you for 30 yeah, days. Yeah. But we wanted you to, you know, and here, and, and so we had a strategy session. Everybody put their ideas, you know, on, on a whiteboard. And, and then the guys went off and, and uh, they just came back. And of course, they, they interviewed people. They talked to customers. They, and, and crucially, talked to mm. customers, right? Because you know, no point in just inventing something mm. internally and then saying, what do you think, customer? <laughs> So, so, so what we really learned was a few things, right? If you're a small business, and this is Alan's point about whether, whether you're a small business or whether you're a big brand, we're creating product for both of you, right? So small business actually can get just as much. They're, they're getting big customer solutions, right? So, so you're, you could be a Fortune 100 brand or you can be you know, an e-commerce company, a startup, and we're going to give you the same technology. So, so imagine that, like that. That's the democratization of intelligence right so so with that notion in mind uh, our guys went off and and, um, and first thing they said was well we don't need to reinvent the wheel here because AI has been around for a long time what we need to do is leverage what's been around for a long time you know there's there's teams of mathematicians you know all across the world who've been writing algorithms and you know machine learning tools and all this so interesting let's license machine learning uh, algorithms and then let's create a patentable, patentable if that's a word, uh, your process to actually run those in parallel with all this data that we have. And our, our process, the thing that we create, the thing that's going to be unique, is how to actually bring all that together, right? How, so, for example, if, if, if a new math team comes up with a great new algorithm next week, we can just plug right into it. So, so in a sense, we've open sourced the machine learning piece. And I would hate to say that it's a um, commoditized asset, but it kind of is, right? Because there are so many people out there creating those things that we can just leverage every new innovation that occurs in the space. Um, but what we have then is created the process around which all that analysis occurs. And so you can imagine that, um, you know, we have, say, a customer who has 450 analysts around the world. 
um, who, who have open zoom now have been manually bringing data together and struggling to get reports out to their clients. And we're automating that entire process, right? From the gathering of the data to the sorting of the data to the analysis of the data. Mm-hmm. Now those people can come in and actually add tremendous value for their customers. They can come in and start saying, oh, interesting, look at these insights that the AI surfaced last night. Um, let me look at the data behind that. That's curious. Yeah. I wasn't expecting yeah. that. Not look at the go. data from Christmas Day when when I was actually relaxing and I actually got a bit of headspace and now exactly. I can come back and actually see it because the AI doesn't need a break. That's exactly right. So so instead of having your best and smartest people swimming through a sea of data trying to find something needle in a haystack, now you have the, the machine doing that grunt work for you and, and you can start adding value going to your customer and saying, you know, last night something really interesting happened and we sold new product to new customers and here's why. Mm-hmm. Um, and we should do more of what as a result, yeah. right? So so really when we think about artificial intelligence, it's, it's it almost seems like a foreign body, right? When you think about it, sort of this alien thing in your head. But in reality what we're doing is we're creating a very friendly tool to, to help humans be more effective. Um, and so... Um, it's our answer to, to the ever-increasing volume of data that's happening out there. It's not going to get less, right? It's mm-hmm. just going to grow and grow and grow. The new data sources are arriving every day. <clears throat> um, in, innovators around the world are coming up with a thousand new ways every day to measure, report, analyze micro things in, in digital economy. And so we, we envision that by in the next five years, probably the number of data sources will multiply by 10. Mm-hmm. And so... We're creating a product that will actually solve for that problem today and tomorrow. Yeah, and scalable. But what you said is really interesting. That is, this is the the real point for the marketer who's feeling under threat from AI. That their future is not about answering the questions, but asking the right question. And the data and the AI can actually unearth that question and unearth those patterns. It's up to them to be able to spot those patterns. But one thing that dawned on me when you're saying about the the large big companies. And often Amazon, Netflix, you know, and Google and Apple are, and Facebook are kind of referred to as the five horsemen. Are, and they've set the bar. Like, yeah. And, and the, the customer is actually, if you're a retail store, even an SME, you're being compared to Amazon every single moment. So tools like Velocity for me are essential in your in your mix. And it's it's beyond your marketing mix. It's your strategy. It's your... It's actually the future of your company. And have you seen companies like SMEs, for example, come in and turn around their business by by automating and by using tools like Velocity? Um, I think we've got some examples. Maybe, David, you might be able to refer to them. But I I think in general what we're seeing is is that they're looking at data and bringing data together in ways that they never really imagined. For instance, as a retailer, a large retailer in North America, who noticed that uh, they, their shelves go empty anytime a tornado is, is hitting, specifically Pop-Tarts. And so they responded to that, right? So knowing that there's a forecast of a tornado coming from a particular town, right, they'll basically fill the shelves with Pop-Tarts because that's the one thing kids love, right, when they've got a shelter. Um, you know, an esoteric example, but there's lots of little examples yeah. like that where uh, we know. need more tornadoes. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, you know, like 90% of retailers um, have committed to using IoT, right, within the next three years. And so the amount of data that uh, people are going to have to manage is getting enormous, and it's, it's growing exponentially. 
And that's the challenge that every marketeer is going to have. And that's really you know, what we're trying to do with AI is to automate the management of that so that you can quickly get to insights. Right. And it doesn't matter what size business you because the data. And I think it's interesting, like Netflix, you know, are very open with their data. Uh, and I think, you know, you can, you can leverage that data. Similarly with Facebook. Right, you can leverage that data as a platform, right, to improve, right, your ability to get to market, and so that's again another thing that we're helping facilitate, right, is for marketers to be able to quickly get the data, commingle it with other sources, and then begin to develop a real strategy. And I, and I think where you know a lot of this is going in you know, this age of fake news and alt facts, I think there's there is a you know I think there's a bit about what is happening in marketing. Where, where companies have to be true to their promise because there is an awful lot of transparency now in terms of customer experience. Uh, somebody has a bad experience, right, uh, at, your, at a local restaurant, they'll post it on Google, right? And so, and I think that's a large part of what I do when I'm looking for hotels or restaurants is I look to other people's opinions about the restaurant. And, uh, and so I think companies now have to really be true to you know, the offer and the customer experience that they're delivering. Uh, otherwise, uh, the light of day will shine on, on bad experiences. And again, more and more data that you got to manage as a marketer. Brilliant. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you guys. Where, where can people find you? Where can people find Velocity? Well, I'm uh, very happy to say we're here in Dublin. Um, just launched here earlier this year. So obviously, www.velocity.com. Um Fantastic team here uh, launching the business for us, led by Alan. Um, and uh, we're also based in New York, and we have people in the Eastern Seaboard and team in Minsk. But uh, but but primarily our, our offices are here in Dublin now. Brilliant. Well, uh, David Dunn, CEO and founder, Alan McNabb, MD of EMEA. Thanks for joining us. Delighted. Thank Pleasure. You. Thank you. So now on the Innovation Show, we welcome Neve Sherwin-Barry, director and co-founder of the Ferry Door Company. Welcome to the show. Hi there. The Irish Ferry Door Company, indeed. I know. Neve. I was going to correct you there, Aidan, but yeah, I, no, I, I, I saw sensed it. Neve, I sensed it. <laughs> there was a little kind of, hey, you left out the Irish Ferry Door Company. Of, of the co- Irish bit is very important. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. The best ferries in the world. But And, and, and as we discussed before the show... I'm already a convert with my three-year-old and seven-year-old. Both have the doors both, and have the oh, worry right. stone as well. So we're very much uh, advocates. You're believers. You're believers. Absolutely. So let, let's, tell, let's tell our audience the story because it's a brilliant story about how you and your husband, Oshin, came up with this idea. Sure, sure. Well, I would love to take um, the credit to myself and Oshin, but it's actually four people. So it's myself and Oshin, and it's my best friend and her husband, Gavin. They were the four founders, yeah. yeah. So um, basically what happened was we were classic Tiger or Celtic Tiger Cubs. So we were living the dream back um, in the kind of mid-2000s, and 2008 came around. <clears throat> my husband was in, uh, Oshin was in mortgages. And as you can imagine, with the bank guarantee and everything that happened after that, the banks literally closed the doors and stopped lending completely. So as a result, our lifestyle and how we lived our lives completely like stood still. We had absolutely no idea what was going to happen. I suppose we probably thought it was going to be not as bad as what it turned out to be. But um, we had bought the big house. We had bought 
big car. Um, as I said, we were we were well able to afford it, and then all of a sudden we weren't. So we were very much plunged into the recession very early on, um, as soon as it kind of hit, really, to be fair. Um, so, I mean, fast forward, <coughs> excuse me, 2013, I mean, at that point, um, we had defaulted hugely on our mortgage and we it, it, our, our house was going and we knew it was. And I suppose really when it went in the end, um, it wasn't so bad because it was over. But knowing that this was all coming down the line was pretty horrendous. So as you can imagine, a very, very stressful time. So when we actually sat down, we had actually bought the fairy doors. It was up um, two tiny little, and they weren't even called fairy doors. They were little shapes. They were only two inches in height. Myself and my friend Eva, who I've grown up with, um, were in upstate New York. We were actually with my husband's family in uh, in Walden in New York. And there was this very random, curious store. It was the most, it was one of these stores in America where you can buy a loaf of bread and go around the corner in the store and buy a gun. Do you know one of those crazy places um, in America? And it, it, to be fair, we we had been there a lot, myself and Oshin, and it always fascinated me what you could find. Um, lo and behold, in the kind of, they had this wooden toys kind of section and there was these three, two little shapes and they looked like doors. We couldn't really figure out what they were. They didn't. They weren't called fairy doors or anything. But then and there, myself and Aoife just um, decided. Well, if we bring them home, we could invite some fairies into the into our house, and uh, that's exactly what we did. So between the two of us, um, we had, um, really like we we really obviously our imaginations and just our imaginations just absolutely took over, and um, we brought them home and introduced them to our own children who really love them. And as I said, now that was pre-recession. So that would have been to early 2008. So this was 2013. And we had had our fairies living with us for five years at that stage. And, and our, our two boys are very small. And um, we put them up. They had, they all absolutely loved it. But we we're having this conversation. And the two lads, our two husbands, were listening in. And we were just discussing what our fairies were doing. And we were having fun. And it was actually... There wasn't much to laugh about at the time. It was really tough. And even Gavin didn't have a hugely easy time either. They had a really tough time with Gavin had been in car sales. And it was that conversation that started. The boys kind of thought, do you know what? We could make it out of this. That is how it started. Brilliant, brilliant. And what was the next step then? So you, you've 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 got these doors. You get, yeah. get a plan together. You sit around the mm-hmm. kitchen table, bottle of wine maybe. Um, it was actually over a cup of tea. A lot of people say it was bottle of wine. <laughs> we had their kids running and out. It was just this afternoon. But yeah, we had no money, you see. We really didn't. And we, we didn't have a spare tenner between us. So um, we were trying to figure out, right, well, who will we ask? Because we really, it just got a really good feeling about us that this is, you know, it really does make us happy. It makes our children happy. So there's something there. So um, my mom had given up smoking nine years previously. And she had saved all the money that she would have spent on cigarettes. It was it ended up being eight and a half thousand euro. Wow. And she gave it to us. Yep, she gave it to us. And you know, to be fair, um it was kind of a, a there was a dual reason why she gave it to us. She did really like the idea, and um, but she also wanted myself and Ushin to stay in the country. And at that point we were leaving, you know, we were emigrating because there was the prospects here were so um limited. Um and we'd we'd really kind of gone quite far into the whole idea of going to Canada so when we actually came up with the idea she was like throwing the money at us going no no try try just stay for another little while so that's how we started it was my mom's money yeah it's brilliant because it 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 ties into so many aspects we've covered on the show and I mentioned to you 
Professor Susan Greenfield, who's the brain professor, one of the world's eminent brain uh, scientists. And she was saying one of the sure. biggest benefits she had in her life was the fact that she was poor and that she had to use her imagination. And you've used that word because it's what's missing so much in innovation. Yeah. Is, is, mm. And it often comes out of adversity, which was our show last week was about adversity and adversity quotient. And sometimes we need that contrast of what we don't want in order to mm. get to where we do want and you guys seem to have just gone through both of these things yeah no it's very true it's very true um you know i mean a, a lot of people i've i've been very lucky to do an awful lot of interviews in the last three years and i suppose you know i talk about the the like the magic as in the playful magic and then the serious magic and there is a huge amount of um, you're absolutely right. I mean, our imaginations and um, the magic of what has happened to us um, from one extreme to the other. Now, don't get me wrong. I mean, we're, not, we're not multimillionaires by any stretch of the imagination. But, you know, we're, we're safer, an awful lot safer than what we were. Um, and it is it's it's it definitely like massive adversity. I mean, to lose your home and. Um, and to know that it was coming, like, I'll never forget it, ever forget it. And it really does motivate us to keep going and keep rooting for what we really need and what we want, you know? Yeah, but what you said there is about, as well about, you know, this is one thing I always tell you, and you've obviously gone through it yourselves, but with our children in the world today, it's, you often think, I don't want them to have it too easy because I need them to understand mm. that they're going to go through these challenges. And, and we owe it to them almost to understand how to overcome adversities that are going to happen in life because without being able to overcome them they can't they won't ever learn that skill absolutely and like i mean i you know it's it's a it's a very big concern because i mean as they call these um millennials which who, who are probably a good bit younger than me now and that's not even going to the next generation of being the age of our kids it is everything is pretty much handed to them and but I think you know even if you speak to if I speak to my own parents and their experience um through the 80s and the recession that hit them in the 80s you know I remember I remember it happening and I remember things being tighter um and I remember them explaining okay well we can't have that because we can't afford it but it was never it never massively impacted me um, and then the same even with my son I mean one of my main concerns he was he was two when it when everything went south for us and like you know we put every bit of energy we had into making sure that his life was not affected by it I mean of course it was in one way but I, I would like to think that it was in a positive way in the sense that if for exactly what you just said there that he will remember that it was hard. There's no question that he will remember that it was hard, but just not too hard that it would, it would you know, kind of block out any of the good memories because there was plenty of them. But yeah, it, it's, I mean, I hope that, and I, please God, this will happen that when Keane is old enough. And I mean, he's 11, so he understands a lot more. But when he is old enough that we can tell him what happened, you know, and, you know, I, I think he'll know, you know, a lot of it already. But um yeah, I mean, it's it's like life is, I mean, even with my own parents, they they felt every bit of it for us, you know, mm. they really did. And they would have done anything. And to be fair to them, like and there was days and months and <laughs> weeks and probably years at this stage now that they actually put food on our table. Like they physically came up and bought our shopping. And, um, you know, it was very hard for everybody, massively hard for everybody. But to actually come out of it the way we did and um, and just sheer determination like sheer determination um 
like I mean I am very proud of that I mean as I said we're not we're certainly not out of the woods completely but we're we're on our way which is brilliant yeah and that that determination that you you have and you have you had probably latent inside you would have never got unleashed without and this is what I mean without that adversity mm. it unleashes yeah. this it unleashes your imagination and it gets you to a place that you, I know you said you're not millionaires, but yet, and and you mentioned <laughs> that word again, stretch of the imagination. But you, but you will, because I just think knowing the depths of where you came from, like you, this is a pattern that's repeatable with entrepreneurs and founders sure. that they go through that and they they live a life that nobody would want for a certain period mm. of time in order to live a life that everybody else can't have for the rest of their lives. You know, it's this kind of pattern. I know, I know. And I think it's very, very, like, you're you're absolutely right, Aidan. And it's very difficult to explain it to somebody who has not been in the situation or, or, or owned their own business and ran their own business. I mean, you know, it's very, like, it's the difference in when you speak to somebody who has run their business or is running a business to those who haven't, like, a massive lack of understanding. Um, but obviously it's like anything else. If you don't experience it yourself, you don't really get it. But yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, the people that we love speaking to are the people that have fallen and gotten back up again. You know, there are inspiration. There's so many of them, particularly after the recession um, that's just happened. I mean, the people that are still standing are, are an absolute inspiration. There's no question. Yeah. And that, now let's get back to the to the story. So the, the fairy tale story as it is. Uh, um, <laughs> Oh, you're probably sick of hearing that. I can, I can actually see the headlines. <laughs> they've, I'm sure they've been there. But um, I'm not one bit, bit sick of it. Not one. No, bit. but uh, okay. So we'll go back to the story because the the product. I remember getting the product very early, and I got it actually through a company called Buy and Sell at the time. And uh, mm. you know they were an early adopter. I think of of uh, of, of. They the were. Product, they were. Yeah. yeah. And out of that, I was kind of going. There's massive potential in this because. It, it's it's about you know if the best companies in the world have a story behind them and your yeah. your imagination is the story because you guys developed this story and created almost a business model that goes way beyond the product to actually kind of been a service based company in the background and mm-hmm. there's there's so many mm-hmm. elements to this and even if you think of the growth of the company you're only a little bit up the S curve of where you're going and there's so much more potential but let's let's get on to that story of how even for people listening to the show who may have ideas like you have had mm-hmm. how did you get going so you had an idea how did you get going yeah i mean <clears throat> uh, like really true and really intrigued with social media and um, social media um as much as I detest it in an awful lot of ways when it comes to business um and as you said yourself getting your story out there, getting, I suppose in, in Ireland, our specific story, um, because everything had been so rough for, for our generation, um, to hear a good story and to hear a positive story, it was instantly, um, people just connected with it, people just identified with it so much and what we had been through. So we had people rooting for us, like yourself, people that bought it very very early on that that knew the story because the media were really quite quick to to catch on to it to be honest because it was a genuine backstory you know there was a story to tell and we had huge advocates like huge advocacy out there people were just talking about it like it, it was a combination of of social media and facebook at the time was free so nothing you had to pay for nothing 
you just had to have good content and it reached people. Whereas now, obviously, it's very, very different. But also we did markets, you know, we did an awful lot of physical like Christmas markets that year, just the year um, the first when we started at the end of August. So it was that Christmas. Um, and then people at the school gate, you know, mums, like it was kids going in in the January after Santa had brought them a fairy door going, well, I have a fairy living in my house. And all the kids, all the, all the other kids going, sorry, what? And then it that traveled out to the school gate and all of a sudden the word of mouth was just incredible. And um, like it was we actually had a bigger January 2014 than we had of the three the three months leading up to, to Christmas of 2013. So we never knew, we never thought that would happen. And that was purely because so many kids had gotten fairy doors for Christmas and then they were all talking about it. It was it was an amazing experience and we really did think, okay, if we get Christmas out of this and get Christmas dinner and some presents out of it, we're laughing. But we it was only in January that we realized, oh okay, this is actually this is actually um going somewhere. And it's great it's great when you hear you know, some people ask me like, you know, I people come out of college and stuff, what do I do? And I was like, do something that you will actually believe in. Because mm. you just, it's almost like our 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 role in life is to actually do something and get it out there and ship it and see what happens. And you know, I agree. I agree. I think that you know, and I'm sitting here as I sit here um, talking to you, Aidan. I, I know you know, and I've been asked that question a few times. Like, well, what advice would you give to somebody with an idea? You know, and really, like, there's so many people out there with good ideas. So many people, but I know, like, you know. If, if it had been me and Aoife, we would have we would have maybe set up a little company and would have sold it to our friends. But I do believe that you need the right team. I don't think anybody um, when it comes to running your own business, I don't think anybody has it every has everything. I don't think any one person has the full set of skills that you need to run a business. I really do believe that if somebody has a good idea, they need to create a team. So it may not be. And people like it shouldn't be people that have the same skill set as you. You should be going out there looking for um, people that have skill sets that complement yours. So, for example, I mean, I'm this is what I do. I speak to people about what we do. Um, I did an awful lot of the social media. I do the customer services. Aoife is creative writer. Oshin is finance. Gavin is sales. So we have four people with different skill sets. And I believe that that was a fundamental reason why we are where we are today. I don't think, I think there's many, many people out there with a wonderful idea and think that, okay, oh, I can't give a bit of this away because then I won't have it all. But really think about creating a like-minded team, people that are passionate, as you said, that are passionate about what you're passionate about. If you can find them with the right skill, I think it's a no-brainer. You know, I really do. And I think that's what holds people back because they're too scared to actually let some of it go. Whereas, you know, letting go of something small um, to grow it into something big, you know, it, it's, it's again, something that's not very natural to people, especially when they know they have something good. But I really do believe that that's the, that the reason, one of the main reasons why we succeeded quite quickly. Yeah. And, and you know, as you were thinking when you were saying that, that sometimes you need some doors to be closed for you in order mm. to open new ones. And, and you need sometimes, it's like when you have too much choice almost, it's a bad thing because you're kind yeah. of, where do I, what do I do? Or if I have too many ideas, which one do I take? And 
Sure. Some people also have the golden handcuffs of the mortgage and the house and the school fees and all this kind of stuff, and they can't mm-hmm. afford to take the jump. And I, I often say to people, if I'm asked about what I would do, what I would do is, as a, as a young person, I probably wouldn't go into a training scheme in a, in a company and do what our, our parents' generation would have liked me to do. And mm. actually, that's when you do it, because when you have that freedom... And it's not, it's not a free, it's a freedom of responsibility almost that you're, oh, it is. isn't it? But I don't think, I don't think that people realize that. I think, you know, you're absolutely right. I mean, when you ha- don't have the mortgage and the kids and the, the, the like the absolutely ridiculous amount of bills, you're absolutely right. Go, that's when you do it. You know, you're, 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 you're young and free and, not hugely responsible for an awful lot of things and certainly not people. Yeah, absolutely. But then I think, you know, that that's again, um, down to, I suppose, um, and to be fair, I can't even give it, I was about to give it the government there and how they, um, kind of, uh, foster innovation and creativity and entrepreneurship. And to be fair to them, they, they, they do quite well. I mean, we've been really supported. Um, I, I couldn't say that we're not, but I, I do understand what you're saying. I think getting out there early with a good idea, just go for it, you know, go mm. for it before you're, you, as you said, these handcuffs are put on and then you're just too scared yeah. because it's, that's a huge thing. I mean, the mortgage is, is the, is the big deal, do you know, the mortgage and, and anyone that obviously bought in the, in the height of the recession, I mean, they're they're completely those handcuffs are are a lot tighter than others. You know, I mean, yeah. it's 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 a big leap. It's a big leap, especially if you have a job that's paid well, and you know. But then, I mean, as I said, I think that just getting the right people together is 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 a huge kind of um, part of the solution. Yeah, and it sounds like you mentioned the different roles, but it's the diver- diversity of thought as well of the the four of you guys, and it seems mm. like you you have a like you all have a different skill to add to the pie and that's really important as well that you're passionate about your own yeah part of the pie absolutely and let me tell you we've killed each other some of the time because yeah. we're so passionate about it but you know I think three and a half years on now um I suppose we've learned so much oh my goodness I mean so much um that we're we're all and we've all been kind of um going in different directions at some stage but um we're all very much all on the same road um again and you know that that's that's brilliant it's great to you know a lot of people say god how do you do it with your friends like how do you do it and don't get me wrong sometimes it's not easy but we've been quite lucky that um we all know each other so long that it was kind of like we had kind of like a brother sister relationship so we could say stuff to each other that you would not necessarily say to another business partner <laughs> that kind yeah. of way it was kind of a family vibe yeah, because I know my my wife would have drop kicked me over the local church. I'd say ten times. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's been times. There's been times. I'm not gonna lie. Not gonna lie. <laughs> oh, she has a few bruises. He can't explain. Um, but uh, yeah, I, exactly. <laughs> what? Um, so do you know one of the things I I, I read about was and it, it was you because you mentioned the word of mouth marketing because this is something that we've a lot of marketers that listen to the show. And sure. we've, we did a, a special with Jeff Bullers on word of mouth marketing and influencer marketing. And you, mm-hmm. you naturally discovered that. And, and I thought, you know, you said that you got that spike of sales in January. And I, and I often sure. thought, 
was it to do with, you know, the Elf on the Shelf is kind of a similar product for mm-hmm. a different time, but, you yep. know, they're coming out of that. And then, you know, you were the kind of next step almost that lasts the other 11 months of the year absolutely you're you're absolutely right that was and we 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 very much traded on that at the beginning you know we very much said to people well you know when buddy the elf goes back to the north pole well then you can have a very to move in and your very will live with you for the whole year um and yeah there's a lot of broken hearts on christmas eve when the when the when the elves have to go back and yeah absolutely um parents just said well do you know what we've got fifi the fairy or we've got pop the fairy or whoever it may be and they can move in and it definitely did it soften the blow and i think you know obviously i'm biased but i think the relationship that children have with this little magical being behind the door is incredibly special and you know it's it's and i could go on about it for a long time so i'm not going to (laughs) i'm not going to totally hog the conversation but i think that as soon as the door goes up and as soon as the key is gone you know when you leave the key out in the morning when the key is gone that's that's the moment you know that's the moment and I think the relationship that the child has with this magical being it's like you know you have mom dad brother sister dog and a fairy do you know that kind of way like it's it's they're part of the family Mm. and you know it's 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 wonderful feedback. You know, we have people like yourself, Aiden, who bought very, very early on and still their fairy is very much still part of their family and part of their children's lives. And that's a huge deal to us. It really is. Yeah. It's just so wonderful. You know, it really is. We're so proud of that. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. And and so I mentioned, you know, January, you got people start talking about it. They are word of mouth. Also, people sharing it. I'm sure WhatsApp and Facebook messages. Oh, telling yes. But, but you then had a, beautiful moment which was the one of the biggest influence in the influencers in the world which is the mm-hmm. kardashians and that mm-hmm. led to a massive spike of sales for you as well could you tell our audience about that one sure sure we had um you know we were always kind of tipping away at, at the whole celebrity thing and saying right well who will we send a door to this week and it was actually late 2015 that we um through our uh, pr agent in the U- UK, who was wonderful, um, she said, well, I've got a contact um, in in Jenner Communications. And we were like, as in the Kardashians? And she said, yep. So we said, right, let's do this. So we we personalized the doors for each of the children. Um, so Courtney had three at the time and Kim had one. And um, we sent them off, really not thinking any more about it. Off they went in the post. Um, and I remember all of us, you know, sending good luck vibes as they went <laughs> and it was actually only a year later it was um 16th of december just just gone so 16th of december 2016 um i was in the gym and i got a text from my friend who said you need to get on snapchat and i was like no nah, it's for young people don't get it don't get it and she's like no nope, you're going to get it today i promise you courtney kardashian just featured one of your doors in her snapchat story and i was like what in God's name? Like, oh my goodness. So I being 37 or 38, sorry, don't know what age I was there, and 38 thinking, oh God, I don't even know how to turn on Snapchat. So I had a girl beside me who looked obviously in her 20s in the gym. <laughs> and I said, sorry, could you could you just sign me up to Snapchat there? And she did it like literally in 40 seconds. I'm not exaggerating. And she she handed me the snap, she's handed me the picture of the fairy door. And she's like, yep, she did. She did. She she featured you in Snapchat. And it was just insane. And later on that day, then she actually featured it in a video, like an actual Snapchat video. Um so yes, it was 
obviously our busiest time of year, but we saw a massive, massive spike in the in the US because um, we can obviously track. We have very good insights in our website, so we can track exactly where people are when they're buying. And um, yeah, massive, massive deal. What we would have preferred, if I'm being picky, is for her to tag us. If she had tagged us. It would be a Marissa Carter moment. It would be a Coco Brown moment um, in a complete life changer. Now, don't get me wrong. It's wonderful. And it's particularly wonderful when you're sitting in front of retailers in the US to actually say, well, you know, the Kardashians have actually endorsed. Um, they, they they like the door. They know um, how the magic works. That's so powerful to us. But if she had tagged us, it would have been overnight yeah. like well, success. Yeah. It's interesting that actually is something I hadn't thought of. I'm still waiting for... Uh, Caitlyn Jenner to um, feature my boxer shorts that I sent that my Aidan McCullen boxer short design. I love it. I love it. Well, I've, listen, you never know. You never know. I've sent it to so many people. I'm just waiting. Nothing yet. Nothing yet. Here's hoping. But now it's fantastic. And um, so what's what's next? Because you went you went on beyond the product. So you went to the worry stone as well. Because um, our kids have that yes. as well. Can, can you tell us about that? Of course, yeah. Um, what happened was we had done quite a few. We'd completed quite a few um, fairy trails. So these are kind of like fairies living in groups in parks around Dublin. So there's three different ones in Dublin. And there's, got, there's actually one in Kerry. It's all around the country. Um, so basically it was like a group of um, fairies. So it's fairy doors up in the trees, maybe 10 or 12 fairy, uh, fairy doors up in trees. And then the worry plaque was actually like a, it's like a, it's like a, um, a kind of a slice of a tree and you put your hand on it. This is, um, like existing around in the parks yeah, and um, Corky Park I've seen it yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Park, yeah and people really loved it and the idea was that the fairy that lived in that tree was taking your worries away so we got really 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 positive feedback and apart from actually the trails it was also one of the things um, that parents were telling us that you know the fairy was helping with their child if they had an issue they were telling their fairy possibly sometimes when they actually didn't even tell their parents so it was it was that coupled with the fact that it was so popular in these fairy trails that we said, right, well, this is the natural progression. You know, um, fairies help take away bad dreams. They bring good luck. They take away your teeth and they also take away your worries. So actually physically seeing the worry being taken away. So when you put your hand on the worry placket, it glows red. So that signifies that the, fairy are, the fairies are listening. You um, either say your worry out loud or say it in your head and then the five seconds later, the plaque will turn green. So the light will turn green, showing you that the fairies have heard your worry and have taken it away. So it's a visual indication that your worry has actually been taken. And like the feedback we've gotten from it is just unreal. It's yeah. just unreal now. It really is. But Neve, do you know, there's, it's, it's why I'm such a fan is, is goes beyond your story. Because I think, you're actually doing a very important thing for society as well. So in a world that's gone very screen filled for children, mm -hmm. even, and, you know, unfortunately, so many parents have to work long hours and don't get to see much of their kids that the whole storytelling in society is gone. Like the physical storytelling of parents to their kids and the amount of, you know, adversity people have more in their life, but it's a different type of one. It's a more of a mental and a social kind of pressures that, sure. that this is a great way to almost moderate behaviors if you look at the, the door because the door 
certainly we've used it as well to actually just leave little kind of go but your fairy wouldn't be happy if you did that you know that kind of thing and then and then that's one part that's the door and then the worry stuff the worry plaque as well is just you, you know because even as an adult you, we talk about neuro-linguistic programming and you know mindfulness and this kind of stuff it's mm-hmm. all part of that same thing i believe mm-hmm. that we're you, you're actually showing the child the worry's gone away and then therefore they believe it's gone away and that that is a brilliant thing it is and it also i agree i agree and it's 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 definitely my favorite my favorite um product that we've we've come up with i i think that um particularly because like i suppose when when you say to a child right well is anything making you sad well how about or worried or and sometimes children don't even know that they're worried you know and when and parents don't even know that their child is worried i mean a lot of people say to us you know, I bought the worry plaque after, you know, the toy show because the toy show was a big uh, turning point for us. And um, the, the I put it up and my child put their hand on, on it and said, well, I'm worried because my friend has been a little bit mean to me in school or I'm worried that I don't know how to do my maths homework or and then there are much bigger worries, you know, much bigger ones. And parents are and they didn't know. And and not only do they not know, um, they, they like this, what this like worry plaque is doing is encouraging children to vocalize what's on their mind and then therefore obviously sharing it with their parents and their parents being able to fix it you know it's or to help them fix it it's just um you're absolutely right mindfulness is is a really big trend at the moment and it's wonderful and obviously very very complex but this is a really easy simple way of helping your child be more mindful and actually be able to discuss what's going on with them and getting obviously then parents to help them out so it is it's it's a very simple very very simple concept um but very effective really very effective brilliant so what have we have you you got more products in the pipeline yeah we've got lots coming out now at the end of the year we've got a back to school range which is very exciting it's something again that our customers have asked for like my children really want a Irish Road or um, a company pencil case and school bag and the whole lot so we've got a whole range coming out and then we have a very um dust mixing set so it's kind of like a science kind of like a little science set um if you're into fairies and science it's the perfect combination and um, we have um oh we've 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 loads in the pipeline Aiden, loads now yeah i mean the one thing we're not short on um is ideas we have a huge yeah, yeah very hq is full of innovation it is just bursting at the seams so it's just really picking what's what's the most effective thing to come next great well Neve, it's been a pleasure talking to Neve Sherwin Barry, co-founder of the Irish Ferry Door Company. Thanks for joining us. You are so welcome.